we say quite often around here, but there's you know, no better day at Scottsdale Bible or any church for that matter uh, than our, our baptism weekends. And so as our Northridge Cactus, as our Cactus Campus, as well as our chapel and venue join us, we uh, hope you guys have had a celebratory time as well, whether there are baptisms or not at those other places, mostly there were, but we're just super thrilled uh, to have you join us here today for our time in the Word. Now, we have to address the elephant in the room that some of you have already noticed. Some of you came in here today and at other campuses and venues, and you've been mildly frustrated. You've had mild anxiety because there's no outline in the bulletin, and um, and. You, you have a rather disciplined, rigid form to your Christianity, and I love you, but I've messed with your meal here today by having no outline. What you need to know is that that is absolutely by design for today. We finished a series last week. Uh, today is what I call an open topic or a one-off. And by design, I want to talk to you about something. We've called this a prelude to grace that I don't want you taking notes I don't want you in study mode, even though this is Scottsdale Bible Church. I don't want you, you know, having to, to get something in your head. I want to I wanna speak to your heart today. And, uh, and sometimes when I do that, it's just easier if you look at me and, and we have a discussion uh, more so than if you're just in that note-taking mode. So I'm pretty sure next week we're going to have notes again, so it'll be back to normal. But today you'll notice that the insert in your bulletin are some words of a famous hymn that we'll get to uh, a little bit later. So uh, you can hold on to that. But for now, let's pray and let's begin our discussion on my all-time favorite topic, this idea of God's grace. Father, uh, we do indeed praise you and thank you for this amazing day today where we get to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ and what that means for so many of us who have already embraced Jesus but now get in touch once again with the joy of our salvation. And Father, we have a rugged discussion before us here today based on your word, uh, some realities that your word talks about, that you talk about, that have to do with our own souls, that truly become a prelude to any experience of grace that we might have. And so God, I pray that you would be with us in a special way. May your Holy Spirit superintend uh, our time of, of in your word right now and do the work that only you can do in our hearts and minds. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's something that we all know about life. You've already learned this up to this point in life, but it's important for where we're going to go right now, and that is that in order to get the good news about something in life, you first have to understand the bad news or the good news doesn't make any sense. Uh, philosophers all agree with that, that good only becomes good when compared to the bad. So, for instance, the good news, it's not cancer, as opposed to the bad news that you had something that needed to be biopsied. Good news, you got the job promotion, as opposed to the bad news that you're going to have to be stuck in the job that you might not like. Good news, the Cleveland Browns might go to the Super Bowl someday, right? <laughs> as opposed to the bad news that they are one of four teams who have never gone to the Super Bowl and it's not looking good this year as well. We all know and understand, I could go on and on, that in order to understand the good news, you have to know something about the bad news or the good news doesn't mean anything. 
And so when it comes to God's grace, this idea of him cutting us some slack and giving us his unmerited favor, what you need to know is that you won't fully get the good news of it, and you surely won't appreciate it or experience it until you understand why it is that you need grace and what it is in your life that it is being applied to. In other words, let's start real simple here and kind of understand sort of the inner workings of grace in general, then we'll apply it to you and God. Here's what we know about grace from the way that you and I use the word, this everybody agrees on, and that is that grace comes into play only when there is a need in your life based on a deficiency. Track the logic of the progression being laid out here. As I suggested a second ago, grace is defined as unmerited favor. It's when someone does something for you or to you that is totally undeserved, something positive that you couldn't merit on your own. That's grace. We all know that. And so by its very definition, think about this. Without an undeserving participant needing some kind of favor, having some kind of need based on a deficiency, there is no grace. In other words, without a hurdle that you cannot jump on your own, without a mountain that you can't climb on your own, without a debt that you can't pay on your own, without a sin that you cannot atone for on your own, then grace has no place. Because without a need based on a deficiency, there is no such thing as grace. Grace only becomes grace when it's meeting a need you can't meet yourself. And the reason that we know this is true is that just about every one of you have found yourself at some point in your life either saying or thinking this thought in light of somebody in front of you. And that is that there are times where you think, man, couldn't you just give me a little bit of grace right now? Have you ever found yourself thinking that or saying that? We all have. Couldn't you just show me a little bit of grace right now? What are you saying when you say that? You're saying, cut me some slack. I have fallen short. Go easy on me. You're admitting that there is a need based on a deficiency, and you realize that only grace can fill that need. Don't ever forget this. Grace, by its very nature, only exists because you and I are messed up. Grace only exists because we fall short and God invented it to help meet that need. This is why the Bible says, if you're not convinced of this point, this should seal the deal. Romans 5.20 puts it this way. It says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there you have it. The greater the need and deficiency, in this case here, sin, the Bible says, the greater the grace that is needed to deal with it. It makes sense based on what we understand about grace. Now, let's move on. In order to see how this works with us and God, which is the point of our talk today, I want us to look at just one passage in the Bible in our time remaining today but it's a very, very profound passage that powerfully lays out the grace of God when it is predicated on an understanding of our sin. This is why I called our time today a prelude to grace, because what the Bible is going to make clear right now is that you will only understand and experience God's grace 
to the degree that you understand and own the sinful side of you, which is precisely why you need grace. And though some might seem like it's going to be a downer for the next 15 or 20 minutes to spend time talking about how sinful and messed up we are, here's what you need to know, is there's actually the opposite. Billions of people have found over the last two millennia that it pays huge and freedom-producing dividends to fully understand how sinful you and I are when it comes to God, because only then... Will you be primed to understand and receive and experience his grace? Now, let me show you what I mean. The passage I want to look at today is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So we're going to look at just seven verses today, and yet they're power-packed verses. And so look at how the first few verses of Ephesians 2 approach this topic that's going to talk about God's grace. This is the prelude to grace here without which you will not ever experience and know God's grace. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So two word pictures that you don't want to miss here. I put it in bold yellow so that you would get it. Uh, The word picture of walking in sin, and then the word picture of living in sin. And then we'll get to that nature thing here in just a few minutes. Uh, First, notice that verse 2 says, in which you formerly walked. This is obviously speaking to Christians here. It's talking about what has happened to us during our salvation, but it's also very relevant to those who have not yet come to Jesus. And it's simply noting here that there are three ways that human beings, all of us, walk in sin. The first way, I love how the Bible puts it, says that we follow the course of this world that we follow the course of this world. This is really amazing. It's saying, it's simply referring to a value system of a world or culture in rebellion to God, a value system that charts its own course and becomes a course that gets a lot of unsuspecting people on board. Don't miss this. It's referring to a pattern of sin that gets ingrained in a particular culture and then everybody follows along, not even realizing how bad it is. And what you need to know is that every single culture that has ever existed in the known history of the world has experienced this. They've had sin infest that culture, and before you know it, everybody's going along with it, and they basically say, well, everybody's doing it. How could it be so bad? And man, I'm telling you, we see this all the time in our 21st century American culture. I shared this with you a while back, but I read a book a few years ago called American Grace, written by, ironically, a Jewish professor at Yale and a a Mormon professor at Notre Dame. And they were writing about the history of Christianity or the church since about 1950 on. 
And, and I shared with you, this will be a good review, that they noted that the 1950s were actually pretty great for America. I mean, it was post-World War II. That's when we put in God we trust on our coins and under God in our pledge, and we were all pretty religious. But then they described the 1960s, I love how they do this, as a massive seismic shock on the religious value system of America. Now, what happened in the late 1960s? Does anybody remember? Some of you don't, because you did too many drugs. In the late 1960s, the counterculture came into being, and the counterculture was all about drugs and driving across America and VW buses and not having any employment, and then the whole open free sex movement, and then eventually leading to a lot of other things. And though we laugh about that, and we even try to idealize Woodstock, what these authors point out, and this is inarguable, is that that was such a massive seismic shock on the American value system that we have never recovered from it. And they even point to the fact that all of our modern day confusion about gender values, marital values, right to life values, really anything having to do with sexuality can be traced back to what happened in the 1960s. It's simply an example of what the Bible said 2,000 years ago, and that is that when a sinful, bunch of sinful human beings get together, they start to, to set the course of this world and people start to follow along. Now, notice with me a second way, if this, this were not bad enough, that verse two describes our walking in sin. And it says that we do so by following the prince of the power of the air. Now, what does that mean? What it's simply saying is, is that there is a power, there is an influence behind our sin, tempting us and encouraging us to do things that we know are not right. And the Bible calls this power Satan or the evil one. Simply put, the Bible affirms over and over again that there is personal evil in this world in a spiritual realm that affects you and I more than we could ever realize, even good-hearted, well-meaning people. And what is it that it tempts us or causes us to do and be? This leads to the third thing that the Bible describes here about walking in sin, and that is that it eventually leads us to being sons and daughters of disobedience. This is a fascinating word picture here. It's simply saying that you and I are children of a fictitious father named disobedience. And like any kid who follows mom and dad's lead, we by nature are really good at following this father of ours named disobedience. And it's why many of us get in trouble in our lives and even find that we are separated or distant from God. So it's the well-meaning business person who gets caught doctoring the expense report. It's a politician who didn't mean to go in lying but found themselves lying. It's preachers who get caught doing things that they know are wrong. No one's immune because as we're gonna see in a minute, it goes to the core of our nature. So we're gonna move on right now, but simply notice that in its first description of our sin here, it's kind of sobering. We follow the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air is at work within us to the point that we are sons and daughters of disobedience. But it's not done yet. 
Because it goes on to say there's a second way that we are all so messed up, and that is that we even live in this realm of our sin. And then it notice, note, notes two ways we do it. Man, if you can't own this, I got nothing more for you. It says here that we live in the realm of sin through the passions of our flesh, which means that earthly, bodily part of us. So simply saying that all of us have these internal passions and urges, we all know that, and when they go unchecked and unregulated, which many times they do, we end up seeking after things that we think will give us pleasure, and yet they cost us a little bit of our soul. And I've never met a human being yet, even those who aren't embracing Jesus, that didn't in some way own this. It's really the American way. Pursue pleasure, pursue what makes you feel good, and if it takes a chunk of your soul with it, then so be it. And the reason that I know we all agree with this is because if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, and you've heard this too. I'll be talking to a well-meaning believer or even a seeker, and they'll be telling me about their messed up life, and I'll say, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that because that's not really right. And what do they say in response? They say, how could something be so wrong that feels so good? Of course, years ago, I said, well, have you ever tried cocaine? I haven't, but I'm told that cocaine makes you feel really good, but you realize pretty quickly that it's very wrong, as most drugs are. And could it be that that's the way a lot of our values are? That, 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 that we do something that gives us pleasure, where deep down we're doubting whether we really should do that or not. We know it's probably not right, but we think to ourselves, it's giving me a jolt of pleasure right now. See, the Bible already nailed that, guys. It's saying that you're simply showing your sinfulness in the passions of your flesh. And then as if this were not enough. I love this next and almost last description when it says that we live in sin in such a way that we carry out the desires of the body. We've seen that, but notice this, and the mind, and the mind. Don't do a drive-by on this one. It's simply referring to the fact that the sin inside you and me goes so deep into our personhood that we become masters at justifying it in our minds, making up excuses all the time to mentally defend why we do what we do. I do it, you do it, we all do it. I, I hear people say things like this. Well, Jamie, everybody tells little white lies. It's not so bad. Or how about this one? Uh, so what if I lost it verbally with my wife and called her things I shouldn't? It's only words. Or how about this one? Hey, it's not the government's money anyways. I earned it, so what if I fudge a little bit on my tax return? Or my favorite, and we're gonna not be able to hear a pin drop here in a minute here, but I hear this one all the time. Hey, everybody lives together before marriage today. I'm not doing anything nobody else is. Told you you could hear a pin drop after that one. Here's my point. We are masters, aren't we, at justifying what we do. And I'm not here to get down on you. We're going to make you feel good in just a minute here. But the reality is, is that you and I need to own this. We give ourselves away by how we act and think. 
Add this all up, because we're going to accelerate here in a minute. I know it's hard to swallow. I know it's no fun to talk about, but it's going to serve us really well in understanding grace in just a second, I promise you. Add it all up. The course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the sons and daughters of disobedience, the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body and mind. And then don't miss where God is leading us in this detailed description of our sin when he sums it all up by simply using two words that say it all. He says, by nature. (laughs) Whoa. You know what that's saying there? And man, if this doesn't sober you, I don't know what will. He's saying you don't just do bad things. But there's something in you, ingrained in your nature, that causes you to do bad things to the point that you can't even help it. So even when you're not doing something bad, and many of you have plenty of times during the day where you're not doing something bad, you're trying your best, the problem is there's something still in you that's going to cause you to do something bad in about a nanosecond. There's something in your nature, the Bible says, that makes it so that you not only have an uphill battle when it comes to sin, but you have a losing battle. You're in that much trouble. This is how lost and fallen humanity is. It's sobering by nature, children of wrath. Our sin goes much deeper than we could ever realize. But here's the good news, gang. God knows this. He sees all this. Now, believe it or not, because some of you are going, man, I hope you're going to get like to this grace thing and the good news here soon. We will. But, But believe it or not, we are not quite done with our descent yet. We're really not. You're going, it gets worse. Yes, it gets worse. It actually gets much worse. So let's be men. Let's be women. Let's be honest about what God says about who we are. Because again, The worse the sin is, the greater the grace is. So just hang with me here. We have one more thing to look at. And that is that because of our deep and abiding sin, the obvious consequence is that we are separated from God as a result. And the primary consequence of this separation is something so extreme that even most Christians, I'm telling you right now, don't get it. Or if they do get it, they really haven't thought about it to the degree that God tells us about it. So look at how Ephesians chapter 2 puts it. It's unmistakable. It's found in verses 1 and 5. It's sobering. But it's the absolute reality of our human condition and standing before God. And it's why we need grace so desperately. Look at what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then verse 5 even when we were dead in our trespasses. Obviously, there's a word I want you to focus on here, twice repeated, that word, dead. And what you need to know is that no longer is the Bible using an analogy here. It's not a word picture. It's not even hyperbole, overstating the case for the sake of effect. This is a literal description of our souls, of our standing before God, before we have experienced or received any of his grace. And so it's worth parking in front of just for a few minutes to understand what is being laid out here. 
In the Greek that the New Testament was written in, this is the Greek word nekros, where we get our English word necrosis from, which means the death of bodily tissue. And in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, this word uh, nekros is used some 130 times. That's a lot. And it's almost always used to describe a dead person. So it's just referring to a person whose heart has stopped working, whose blood has stopped flowing, whose nerves have stopped twitching. They are what you and I know today, dead. So this word was used to describe Lazarus when he was dead, Ananias and Sapphira when they were dead, the man who fell asleep during Paul's sermon in the book of Acts and fell out of a window when he was dead, Jesus when he was dead. It was even used to describe Jesus when he rose from the, say the word with me, dead. So you guys get it. It means dead. No life, no activity, no energy at all flowing in what was once alive. So let me ask you a very simple question. When Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 5 here tell us that due to our trespasses and sins that all humanity is dead, do you think that it means dead literally or not? It's literally I mean, I'm so thankful right now for the image I'm about to use because some of you, especially younger people will get this. Some of you older people who watch AMC will get this. There's a, a television show that's really popular on AMC called The Walking Dead. <laughs> and it's about zombies. Some of you aren't into that stuff, but it's actually kind of cool. And it's about zombies that take over America and, and, and their bodies are dead, but they're still walking around. See, that's a great image of how God describes you and I before we get his grace. We're walking around looking all nice, driving nice cars, you know, having a nice jobs, saving for a nice retirement, raising semi-nice kids. We're doing all the things that we, we know to do. And yet, like that old Sean Penn movie, God says, you're a bunch of dead people walking because you don't understand how messed up you really are. Uh, John Gerstner was one of the great preachers and scholars of the 20th century who passed away about 25 years ago, he was educated with a PhD from Harvard. He taught and preached for years, proclaiming and defending the gospel during the 20th century. And having a passion for grace, as well as this prelude to grace that we're talking about today, this candid understanding of our sin, Gerstner once made this observation, and I thought it was just a fascinating observation about our culture. He said this, he said, there are three basic theologies in the world. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are either sick, weak, or dead. <laughs> he says if you're sick, then you need to self-medicate. If you're weak, then you can fix yourself, with a little help, fix yourself with a little help and spiritual exercise. If you're dead, you can do nothing. You need divine intervention. Wow. Did he nail our culture or what? I mean, many people, even many Christians around, the way they describe our sinful condition, they basically say, well, you know, we're all pretty much sick. But using that word picture analogy, then just go to a doctor. Just go to an Amazon book in the self-help section. Just watch Oprah or Dr. Phil. Get a little therapy. All good things to do, but that's what you do for sick people. Or I hear Christians describe our condition as weak. Well, we're just really weak. We're not as strong as we used to be. And we're kind of helpless and we give in to sin too much. Well, then fix yourself with a little bit of spiritual help. But you see, the Bible never says you and I are sick. It never says we're weak. It says we're dead. 
And though we don't want to see it like that, because I know this is a sobering discussion, you will never get the grace of God until you understand what's really going on in your soul. And we're going to have some fun with this right now. Gerstner, who was a, a fiery preacher, uh, used to uh, tell the story of the two different views even of salvation within the Christian church, one of which he says just falls way short and the other one is kind of right. The first view he would say goes like this. He would say that if you picture the ship of life, uh, we all fallen overboard. And when you fall overboard on the ship of life, you know, you don't know how to swim, so you go down once and then you go down twice. And at the very last moment, Jesus throws you one of those life preservers and some of you in a desperate moment reach out and you grab onto that life preserver and he pulls you back into the boat. He says that's one view of salvation kind of a cooperative thing between you and Jesus. He says the second view of salvation, which is more to the biblical point, is that yes, you've been thrown over the, the ship of life and you're drowning and you go down once and you go down twice <laughs> and then you go down a third time and you float to the bottom of the ocean. And as Gerstner would say, your lungs fill up with water, you gasp your last breath, your heart stops beating and you are dead on the bottom of the ocean. And this is where the story becomes fun. Gerstner would get all fiery with his gravelly voice and he'd say, but God would reach down into the depths of the ocean and he would pick up your lifeless body and he would put you onto dry ground and he would breathe new life into your dead body so that what was once dead is now alive because of God. Don't I do a good Gerstner imitation if you ask me? <laughs> And folks, that's the point. <laughs> Only God can breathe new life into our dead souls. Only God and his grace can produce the forgiveness that our sin needs and that our lifeless souls need in order to live. Only God can do that. So we have 10 minutes before we're gonna wrap up in a special way today. I, I promise we're gonna wrap up in a special way. But in the next 10 minutes, let's only talk about that which is positive. Let's read the next four verses of Ephesians 4 that after it gives us this prelude of grace that is so convicting and so sobering but is so beneficial for our soul. Let's read now what it says happens next for those of us who want his grace. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love how it begins here. This is the transition from your sin to God's grace. You ready for this? But God. Not your parents, not your gifts and talents, not your ingenuity, not even your remorse and feeling bad. None of that is what makes the change. God makes the change. This is what John Stott refers to as the mighty adversative, but God. 
And what does God do? Because of his mercy and love, now watch this, he makes us alive together with Christ. Man, that's a loaded phrase right there. And for those of you who know the story of Jesus, it makes perfect sense that Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life among us because he was God come in the flesh. And then as he lived the perfect life that we could never do, he went to a wooden cross and he died a sinner's death. And the Bible says that when he was on that cross, he was bearing your sin and mine upon him. He bought our forgiveness on that cross and then rose from the dead to show his victory over sin and death. And that for those of us who now embrace Jesus, we are now made alive together with him. Do you notice the contrast there? That you once were dead, but now in Jesus, his grace makes you alive. So Romans would say it this way years later. It would say, and if, it would say, and if Christ is in you, if you believe in him, though the body is dead because of sin, you still struggle with that stuff, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness, yours or Jesus's? Jesus's. Got to understand the Bible in its context here. So go back to our passage here. Let's finish it. He made us alive with Christ. And now you're, you're starting to get it. It's grace that saves you. You can't do it. You can't hurdle it. You can't climb the mountain. You can't pay the debt. You cannot atone for your own sin. You're too messed up. His grace is the only thing you have. And it's offered to you in Jesus and if you embrace Jesus, he raises you up with him and seats you with him. What's that about? Now, don't miss this, because most Christians don't understand this. You will now. When it says Jesus has been raised up and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, do you all, do you all understand that is a throne of power? That is a throne of ruling? That is a throne of sovereignty over everything in the spiritual and natural world? And so when it says that we are now seated with him, it's simply a poetic way of saying we got power and we now can deal with our sin. We don't have to be the person that we were. We can become now the men and women that God wants us to be. And it'll take a lifetime to do it and you probably won't get it all done in this life. So thank God for the blood of Jesus. So he'll accept you into eternity because of what Christ has done. But you don't need to be stuck in your sin anymore because you've now been raised up with him and seated with him. Why? Again, I'm like a one-string banjo. I got the same tune, but it's the Bible's tune. It's due to the riches of his grace to you. It's all about grace. And the greater that you know your sin, the greater that you're courageous to understand your sin is to the degree that you understand and experience his grace. Folks, listen to me. The longing of every human heart and the longing of every life, don't ever be fooled. The longing is to connect meaningfully and experientially with God who made us and loves us. I promise you that. Neil said earlier, I, I loved it when he said this. He said, you know, he was driving to church today and he's watching all the country club people playing golf and all the Starbucks people reading their paper and he, and he kind of felt like, hey, you guys should be in church and all that. I agree with him, but you know, when, when I see a, a country club person playing golf or a Starbucks person playing, uh, reading the paper or a, a biker out biking or whatever, my, my heart just breaks because, and, and try to latch onto this, I, I think this is really true. I think they're riding their bike and swinging their club and reading their paper because deep down they long 
for God. I think deep down, their heart is yearning for something that will add meaning, purpose, and excitement to their life. It's just that they think it's gonna be found through riding a bike. How crazy is that? Or reading a newspaper, <laughs> or swinging a golf club. I like doing all those things. Well, I don't ride a bike, but I like doing those things. But I'm not fooled into thinking that those are things that will give me what my heart is looking for. St. Augustine said it 1,500 years ago when he said it this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And guess what? Everybody's heart is restless. Everybody you meet, including yours. And until we admit that, that only our rest will be found in Jesus, we're just playing games. And as we've seen today, here's the real tragedy, is that our sin, that our culture is afraid to even use that word, our sin keeps us from finding our rest. It keeps us busy, it keeps us distant, it keeps us wandering, it keeps us selfish, it keeps us separated, it keeps us in denial, which is why so many people resist the discussion you and I are having today. And yet the only reason we need to have this discussion is because it's God's grace that leads us home. And you'll never understand his grace. You'll never experience his grace without understanding your need for it. And your need is not just for him to make you a better person, give you a better marriage, help you make more money, make you a happier person. All those are fine. But that really isn't why he's given you his grace. He gave you his grace, if I could put it most pointedly, so that you wouldn't end up in hell. He gave you his grace so that that sin problem that you have between you and him can be erased. So that you can come back into the fold to him and finally know him as father and Jesus as brother, and the Holy Spirit as one who fills you and prepares you for life ahead. I love how Philip Yancey put it in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I love this. He says, grace is the last best word. It's really true. It's the last word God's ever going to use until you get to heaven. By the way, in heaven, there'll be no grace. Do you all understand that? Because in heaven, there'll be perfection. In heaven, there's no need based on deficiency. Grace is what you need now. In heaven, you're going to be face to face. Grace gets you to heaven. I thought long and hard after this message about what we're going to do to close our time together. We got about six, seven minutes left. And so here's what we're going to do here, as well as at our other campuses and venues. And that is that we are going to sing a song together. So if you'd pull out this sheet right now, uh, we're going to sing a song. Now, some of you that are either brand new to the faith or younger go, I've never heard this song. And some of you older people are going, what a shame. Because this is one of those old hymns written by a guy named Isaac Watts from years ago that I would say probably summarizes what we've been talking about today, the good news based on the bad news, better than any other hymn out there. It's called At the Cross. And here's what's going to happen in the next few minutes. This is going to be a moment in time for our church. We're going to sing this song here in the worship center, and then the other campuses and venues are going to have their own rendition and sing it as well. And as we're singing it, uh, here's what we're going to be noting. Let me just read some of it for you. We're going to start off by singing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head, meaning Jesus, for sinners such as I? And what's the answer to that? Yes, that even though you're a sinful mess, 
Even though there's a hurdle you can't jump yourself, he gave you a savior named Jesus. And then we sing the chorus, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Then we move on to verse two. Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon that tree, that cross? And the answer is obviously yes, that's why he went there. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And then we're gonna go to at the cross, at the cross. And then the third stanza. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. How can I repay Jesus for what he did for me? So here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. So don't miss that, gang, because this is what I want you to do over the next five minutes. If you'd all believe anything we're talking about here today, if you believe in your sin, <laughs> but if you believe more in Jesus who saves you from your sin, then your job right now is to give yourself to him. Man, just give yourself to him in worship. Some of you aren't good singers. I know that. I watch you. Man, you barely utter the words. But if ever, if ever you sang a song, let's sing this one. Because there's three types of people in this room right now, as well as at Northridge, Cactus, Chapel, and Venue. Three types of people. There are those of you who are already fully convinced about what we're talking about here today. You know you're a sinner. You have years of empirical experience to back that one up. And you know that you need a savior and you've embraced him and his name is Jesus. So here's what I want you to do today. Man, you sing like there is nothing more to sing about because there isn't. I want you to give yourself to God. Second group of those of you here today are those of you who are finally convinced that you are a sinner. You finally get it. Man, you, you, you get it and you're ready to embrace Jesus. Sometimes when, you're, when, we're, when we do this here, we have you walk an aisle. Sometimes we have you raise your hand and pray a prayer. Here's what I'm gonna have you do today. You're gonna love this. I'm gonna have you sing a song. And you're gonna sing this song as your newfound salvation. That as you believe and trust in Jesus, man, sing this for the very first time as your salvation plea before him. And then the third category, those of you here today, and you're gonna love, gotta love Christians, are, are those of you who need to come home to God again. You're like the prodigal who's wandered again. And so you don't need to be saved again. Once saved, always saved. We believe that here. But you do need to come home to him. And today you're convicted of your sin. And you're gonna sing this song right now as your repentance song falling at the foot of the cross again, saying, receive me back, Lord Jesus, I come home to you. And what a glorious moment this will be. There's obviously a fourth category here of those of you who aren't gonna sing this for anything that it's worth. And you need to know we love you. We care for you. Continue to come back. Our hope and prayer for you is that this will eventually sink in, not the song, but Jesus. And I believe as you stay in the ring with him, eventually you'll get there. But for the first three categories of us today, man, let's sing like the Browns went to the Super Bowl. <laughs> let's sing like there is no more tomorrow. Let's sing, as one great Christian once put it, let's sing our homegoing song as if maybe this is the last song we will ever sing. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity, even though it's brutal, of Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. But then, Lord, I thank you, obviously, even more for verses four through seven that, that put that prelude to grace all in perspective and tell us that we are not lost in our sin, 
but that we can be found in our sin if we but believe in Jesus and the grace that he has given to us on the cross. So Father, we wanna do real business with you right now. Some of us wanna just simply celebrate the joy of our salvation. Others of us wanna experience that salvation and come home to you now. And Lord, other of us need to come home again. So Lord, we sing to you this precious old hymn and we sing it in such a way, Lord, in which this is from the heart as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.